Now, since the beginning of our series, which was a few months ago, we have been defining wisdom as the skill of living rightly. Wisdom is a skill. Wisdom isn't about knowledge. It's a skill for living. It's not mere intellect, so it's not just knowing things necessarily that is what makes one wise. But rather, it's knowing what to do, what to say the right thing, do the right thing at the right time, applying knowledge skillfully to a particular situation. That is wisdom. That is what makes one wise. And wisdom has as its foundation the fear of the Lord. It's the purpose statement of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we're told there that fools despise knowledge. We cannot have wisdom apart from a personal relationship with the all-wise and sovereign God. We cannot know wisdom apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, whom the Scripture reveals is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we spent a lot of time in those first nine chapters because they are key to understanding the rest of this book. All of those lessons contained there, Solomon instructing his son on how to stay on the way of wisdom, exhorting him, encouraging him, warning him, all these things. Stay on wisdom's path, treasure wisdom, embrace wisdom, seek after wisdom, hold on to my teachings. There, if you stay on that path, there are blessings. If you stay on that path, you'll find life. But he also warned him about the path of folly. That if he chooses to go down that path, if he's enticed by sinners and the forbidden woman and goes down that path, well, there's no life there, is there? It's destruction, it's misery, it's death. So what did he do? To help him grab a hold of wisdom, he began to personify wisdom and say, here's what wisdom is like. She is this beautiful, attractive woman that you need to seek after that you need to treasure, that you need to marry, that you need to take into your heart, that you need to hold fast within your life in order to have the blessings of wisdom. He also personified folly and said, "This here's what folly's like, and she's like the forbidden woman. She will entice you. She will seduce you. A lot of flattering words. She's got honey lips, smooth words, but she's going to take you down a different path, and that path isn't life. Her path goes down to the very grave itself. So stay off that path. These are rivals to wisdom. Those two paths are going to always be before the Son. And He's got to make a commitment to wisdom, to choose the path of wisdom. It's the same decision you and I have been confronted here with week in and week out. Are we going to make a commitment to wisdom? A commitment to Christ who is wisdom from God and the wisdom of God. And if we stay on that path, right, that's the path of life. Now, we're coming to this section of Proverbs that everyone is most familiar with, right? All of the individual wisdom sayings. These these little short wisdom sayings here that pack a lot of punch in, in a very concise and portable way. Now, at the beginning of our series, we kind of looked at at Proverbs, these individual Proverbs as these verbal representations, like a small model of some aspect of life itself. That these teachings, the sages compiled them because they've observed things in life and and says, hey, look at this situation, look at this portion of life, and, and then here's how one should act in wisdom for a particular outcome. 
They're a way to look at real-life situations, look at real-life experiences, and then know how to act in advance and know what to expect before you take action. The wise person is the one who evaluates their actions and the consequences of their actions before they take them, right? And these Proverbs help us to do that. We use the example of a, a like virtual reality or a flight simulator. Aren't you glad pilots spend a lot of time in a flight simulator before they actually get in a real airplane? Imagine going to the airport, getting in the plane, and the captain says, Hey guys, I'm excited to be your captain today. It's my first time flying. That would not instill much confidence, would it? Get out, right? Right. So th- these are what Proverbs are for us. They give us a glimpse of real life so that we can order our life according to God's way. Solomon, the other Hebrew sages that you, you'll find, uh, their collection of Proverbs there written down, they, they, they pen these as a fruit of experience and observation, reflection, meditation, discernment. To what end? To train God's people on how to apply knowledge and how to apply God's word to all of the affairs of life according to revealed wisdom. And that's what we get to read. Hundreds and hundreds of those in our Bible. Now, before we get to our text, I want to take a few moments and walk through five principles on how to read Proverbs. Um, before we look at that wisdom in, in this first chapter here. Okay? And they're important. And they're things I want you to always hold in mind as you read the individual Proverbs. All right? So, here are these principles. The first is to keep the two paths in mind. It is perhaps one of the most important things you can do. Uh, when you're reading is, uh, the individual Proverbs, is to keep the structure of Proverbs in mind. And that structure is what we've been looking at through those first nine chapters. The imagery of the two paths, the two ways, the two women. Right? That's the structure of Proverbs. Everything you find contained in these Proverbs, here is Solomon showing his son the two paths. The two outcomes, right? And those are going to be contrasted in a variety of ways. We have wisdom and folly. We have the wise person. We have the foolish person, also known as the fool. You have the righteous and you have the wicked. You have life. You have death. You're going to see those contrasted throughout the Proverbs there. And some of them, sometimes some of the Proverbs just speak about one of the paths. But oftentimes, as you're going to see in chapter 10, a lot of them are going to talk about the two paths, right, in parallel, all right? So keep the two paths in mind as you read. The second principle is that no proverb is exhaustive. No proverb is complete in what it's teaching. These are pithy, wisdom-filled sayings that are concise. Because they're concise, they concentrate truth in such a way that they cannot possibly say everything that needs to be said about the particular theme or topic that it's presenting. It's impossible. It's not the point. I don't know many of you in school, when you had to do a paper, and you didn't read the book, you'd get the cliff notes. Anyone? I don't even know if cliff notes are around. They probably still are, right? You probably find that all online for free now. But I remember having to write some papers and going to the, to the bookstore to buy cliff notes on a particular book because I didn't read it. And the reality is the cliff notes don't tell you everything there needs to know about that book. So I didn't fare well in many of those papers, right? It's better to read the whole thing. 
And, and these proverbs are kind of like those clip notes. They're not saying everything that needs to be said. And you need to, to understand that, right? Uh, so we don't read a single proverb without studying it, right? Uh, taking into the context, right? And holding on to all of the truth revealed in God's word concerning the particular theme, right? What does God's word say about this topic that that particular proverb isn't saying? It gives us a more complete picture, Proverbs 22.6, perhaps one of the most memorized or, or known Proverbs, right? Train up a child in the way he should go, and what? When he's old, he will not depart from it, right? That's great comfort to parents. You're like, if I raise them up, you know, in the ways of the Lord, when they're older, they're not going to depart, right? That's the truth contained in there, that how we rear our children, how we bring up our children will have long-lasting effects, It'll affect their behavior for the entirety of their life. That if we as parents are diligent in instructing them and shaping them, right, as they're young, in the ways of wisdom, then they will remain on wisdom's path. But that does not express everything there is to say about training up your children, does it? That doesn't even tell you how to train up your children. So it's not a truth we can just quote like a promise And throw it out there and say that's everything there is to know about that. No, not at all, right? We have to take this single component of truth and see how it fits together with all of the other truth in God's Word. We get a more comprehensive understanding of how that works out in real life. So we look at other Proverbs that do instruct us about how training up, what it looks like to train up a child. Discipline, correction, warning them about how they use words in their speech, how they're to conduct themselves in life, right, and in relationships and in their work and all of these things. We need to look at all of those things to get the bigger picture. These are individual puzzle pieces to a much larger puzzle, all right? And you need to see those individual Proverbs that way. Third principle is that Proverbs are general promises. Proverbs are general promises. Are they promises? When we read particular Proverbs that are expressed like a promise from God for the righteous, can we see them that way? Yes, you can. They are. But holding something in mind here, they are general promises. For the righteous, these promises are generally true now, but are ultimately true later. We've talked about this already. We don't read these promises as absolute, unconditional, guaranteed promises. That if I do A, mechanically, religiously, diligently, I will always get B, the outcome that it expresses. We can't see it that way. They are generalizations, right? They have observed life. The teachings of God, the word of God, generally, this is how it works out for the righteous. But not always. The Proverbs presuppose the right circumstance for its right application. That's why we cannot see it as always true in every circumstance. The right time, the right uh, circumstance, the right application will generally yield the expressed result and outcome. But this is why we need wisdom. Wisdom shows us how to do that. Wisdom shows us this is the right time, the right application, the right circumstance to apply this particular principle. But the wise person knows that it's not just about naming and claiming it. People name and claim Proverbs and like, that's just dumb. That's not how wisdom works. 
That's not how it works at all. You can't just use them like magical incantations, right? If I say these words or, or memorize them and just apply them in a rigid mechanical way, that I'm automatically going to get health, wealth, success, and happiness, right? It takes a wise person to activate the teaching of a proverb correctly, and it takes a wise person to understand that even though they do the right thing at the right time in the right circumstance, they may not always get the desired result. Why? Sin, brokenness, this is our world, okay? And God may have other plans concerning these things. All right, four. Remember Christ is the fulfillment of wisdom. This is so key, so important. We talk about it every single week here, right? Ultimately, in Christ, the perfect fulfillment of every one of those promises is yours. Amen? Believe that, because it's the truth. Jesus identified himself as someone greater than Solomon. So when you see these Proverbs and you see wisdom, know what it's pointing to. The ultimate fulfillment of wisdom in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we see wisdom on display through his teachings. We see it displayed in his interactions with people. And he's identified in scripture as the wisdom of God and wisdom from God. He is the perfect, faithful, and obedient son who has gone before us to secure our righteousness and to secure every single one of these promises for us, brothers and sisters. That's the way you need to see that. We're going to see this a little bit more in chapter 10. But he fulfills every single promise to the righteous who are made righteous through him. So don't forget that principle as you read them. And the fifth here is in line with that. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Because Christ is the fulfillment of wisdom and righteousness presented to us in Proverbs, we don't read Proverbs as a list of things we have to do in order to be accepted by God, to be loved by God, to receive favor from God, to be saved by God. Do not get this backwards. Right? You'll be reading this like a Pharisee. You'll be reading this the wrong way if that's how you engage Proverbs as a list of have-tos. And that's what's going to secure salvation and righteousness for me. Rather, it is because we've already been made righteous, because God already loves us and accepts us in Christ, we get to do these things. We're enabled to do these things joyfully by the grace and power of God. So we don't do them to become his child. We do it because we are his children God is at work in us, producing in us the fruit of righteousness, the outworking of righteousness that Christ secured for us. He is sanctifying us. Now, are we sanctified before we're made righteous? You should know this. Does sanctification precede justification in our righteousness? No, it does not. Because we've been justified, because we've been made righteous, because God has placed His Spirit in us, now He's producing holiness in us. So when you come to Proverbs, look at it as a book of sanctification. Because that's what it is. God's going to use these things to sanctify us, to conform us, to make us more the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. All right? So approach it. From that perspective, with the right perspective in mind. So you read Proverbs, and you allow that to, to be held up as a mirror to your own life. And you look at it, and you, be, you see, are there patterns of foolishness in my life? Are, the, are there areas here that the Spirit needs to continue to work in me and sanctify? 
Whatever that might be. And if there is, what do we do? We confess, we repent, and we look to Christ, our righteousness, right? So Proverbs are going to reveal idolatry in our heart. Yeah. When you read Proverbs and you look at that and you're like, I don't, I'm not doing that, that might be an issue of idolatry. That might be an area you are not believing the gospel. That might be in an area you're not trusting Christ, and that's what we need to do. We repent, we turn, and we turn to Christ. We turn away from that folly, and we turn to wisdom, which is Jesus Christ. More on that as we go through these Proverbs. Now, as we read this chapter, I want you to pay close attention to the two paths as they're outlined. I'm going to read the whole chapter. We are not going to go through the whole chapter, all right? You're like, wow, this is going to be long. It's not, it's not. We are going to we're going to begin to look at themes in Proverbs now, right? So uh, I'm just going to go through the first several verses, and that's pretty much all we're going to go through today from chapter 10. But I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter because I want you to think of those principles we just talked about and see some of those things already presented to us here. The two paths expressed in a variety of ways: wise son, foolish son, life, death, righteous, wicked. They're all in this chapter. And then I want you to begin to think about how are those things fulfilled in Jesus Christ? So when you read Proverbs, I want that in mind. So observe the the parallelism of the opposites here that are used to contrast these two paths, these two ways. And you'll know that because of the conjunction but, all right, that connects those two things together. So observe how many times you see that in this, just in this one chapter here, all right? Also notice and pay attention to how many times there's a reference to speech and words and the tongue. That is a super important recurring theme in Proverbs itself. All right, well, let's turn here to the Word of God. Chapter 10 of Proverbs, hear the words of the Lord. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father. But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. 
Whoever heeds instruction is on the path of life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes is the sluggard to those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. These are the words of the Lord. Now, verse 1 immediately tells us these are the Proverbs of Solomon. This is what's called a Janus verse. It's a transition here between what came before and what's coming, but they are connected. All right? These are the practical application of everything Solomon has been instructing his son in those first uh, nine chapters. So it's the start of his collection of these individual wisdom sayings, and his collection goes all the way to chapter 22, verse 16. Right? Remember, Solomon's not the only author of Proverbs, but the, the, the lion's share of it uh, is attributed to Solomon. And at first glance, when you look at these, they look like random disjointed sayings. Like, why is that? I mean, it's just like shotgun, spit it, you know, you're just spitting out truth over here and, and just putting down whatever, like stream of consciousness, you know. So it, it seems disorganized, disjointed, and random, you know, like when you read this chapter, it's like, all right, son, let me tell you what it's like to be a wise son. Oh, oh but also let me tell you about money. Oh, yeah, and let me also tell you about work. Don't be lazy. Be diligent. And, and now I'm going to talk about the blessings of God. And, and now I'm going to talk about lips and the mouth and, and, and words and how to use speech, right? Why is that? Ultimately, what I want you to see is Solomon is obeying what the Lord instructed his people in Deuteronomy 6. He's doing exactly what parents are supposed to be doing, instructing their children in the ways of the Lord, in the commands of God, in the law of God. Deuteronomy 6, and we've looked at this already in this series, what did God command his his people? He said parents are to raise their children in the law of God, knowing the law of God, and when are they to do it? When they wake up, when they sit down, When they go along the way, on the road, and when they lie down. When is that? It's all the time. It's every day. It's in every single opportunity. That is when parents are to be instructing children. You don't just sit your child down one day and say, I'm going to just download to you everything I need to teach you about life. And we're not going to get up until I'm done. 
Now, if we were jacked in the matrix, you know, and the construct, that's a different story. That's not real life, okay? No, when do we do that? How do we instruct? Well, all day, every day, as we're conversing with them and topics come up, there's an opportunity as a situation arises or a trial that they're going through or when they sin or we're all day, all the time, we are to be instructing our children depending on the, on the moment, the situation, the topic, the conversation, we dispense wisdom. We try to instruct our, our children in the ways of, of the Lord, in the word of God, and, and that's what's happening here. In Proverbs, hundreds of Proverbs, right, that are just to address all different aspects in his son's life, things he may encounter, situations he may encounter, and how to walk in wisdom's way. Now, so we can't possibly go through all of these, as I've said there, right? We're going to look at broad themes, and that's what we're going to do in this, in this chapter here, just in the first few verses, to kind of give you a taste for what we're looking at here when we read these Proverbs, a lot of people say, I read a, a chapter a day of Proverbs. That's wonderful. It's a great way to become familiar with them. But ultimately, what you're going to want to do is go really slowly through these Proverbs. Take one proverb and chew on it. Pick it apart. Meditate on it. What is actually going on here? What is the truth trying to be conveyed here? And wrestle with that based on the principles that we talked about. So let's look at the first verse here on the wise son. Because this is, kind of, this is kind of like the thesis for all of these Proverbs here. They're for the son. They're to instruct his child. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Now, does that mean that a mother isn't glad when her son is wise? Or that a father, you know, then grieves when his son is foolish, right? No, parents grieve, both do. Right? This is poetic language here. You're going to see in other Proverbs the father grieving and the mother joyful okay, regarding an action of the son here. Okay? But he says, a wise son makes a glad father. Think about everything that Solomon's been imploring his son to, to receive the transmitted spiritual inheritance, his teachings and commands, and wanting his son to obey them and do them. Well, when the son actually does them, begins to grow in wisdom and, and hold on to the family's values and walk in wisdom's way, well, that's going to gladden the heart of his parents, right? At least it should bring joy to them. When you as a child make wise choices and walk in wisdom's way, that makes mom and dad happy. Yes, every time. Every parent wants their child to do that. Every parent is joyful when they see their children making wise choices and wise decisions and making a commitment to wisdom, right? Good parents want their children to experience the life and blessings that come from wisdom's way and walking in wisdom's way and obedience to God. But, right, here's your conjunction, here's the parallel opposite presented. A foolish son brings grief, not joy, to his parents, the consequences of our children's terrible and foolish choices have impacts that go beyond them. Many of you parents here have experienced that. Have realized that. It's a, it's a lie of our world, right? That sometimes our, our choices only affect us. They don't just affect us at all. How many parents have suffered when their child has chosen to walk on the path of folly? 
How many moms weep and lament over the foolish choices and lifestyles and decisions that their children have made? Think about the, the culture of this time. Now, Solomon's son, you know, would be the heir to the throne, right? He is a royalty. He's a prince. One day he's going to rule over this nation. And he is hoping that he is going to make the wise choice. Walk in wisdom's way. Because it's going to have widespread consequences. But let's go down to the macro level, the family. This was in agrarian society. Sons were indispensable to, to the family, to the family business, to survival, and to life. A lazy son could threaten the very existence of the family. A son who made poor decisions and squandered the family's resources and wealth would have impact and effect far beyond them. And yeah, that would bring grief to the heart of mom and dad. That's why children, you need to listen to your mom and dad. You need to honor and respect them. Because that is what God commands. Make decisions Listen to them when they're telling you about God's word and what God has to say about something. It is so important that you do that. It's a, it's a divine command. It's one of the commandments, isn't it? Honor your father and mother so that what? There's a promise attached to that. It'll go well with you in the land. You'll have a long life. And we've talked about what long life represents in Proverbs here. It's important. The choices you make in life don't only affect you, they affect everyone around you that loves you. So there's a, another motivation here, the family's affections to, to motivate the son. Hey, listen, not only do you have to obey God, but think about how it's going to impact others. Because our choices do. Jesus is the supreme example here of obedience, right? And growth and wisdom, Luke 2.52 tells us that as a young boy, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So he walked this aspect out of what it meant to be an obedient son. We have an example enshrined in scripture for us of Christ's obedience as a young boy. And how Mary marveled about that. And how others looked at the great wisdom. How, how could this young boy have such wisdom? For his age. But he walked out. This, he's the wise and obedient son. Who goes before us. When you read Proverbs. I want you to read it from that perspective. You are a son and daughter of God. So you ought to want to discover in God's word. What pleases our heavenly father. What pleases the Lord. In fact Paul exhorts us to do that in Ephesians. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In Ephesians 5.10. What is pleasing to the Lord? So when you make the choice and commit yourself to wisdom, you gladden not only the heart of your child, the heart of your parents, but you gladden the heart of our Heavenly Father. And we should all desire to do that because we're His children. Amen? All right. Let's look at the second part here. Wisdom in wealth. Now, going all the way back to chapter 1, Solomon tells his, his son here to avoid the enticement of sinners. They're going to be wicked people who are going to come around him and, and, and try to entice him to go down the path of folly and, and, and do things for uh, ill-gotten gain, easy money. 
violence and, and thievery and, and all sorts of things. Here's a quick way, the shortcut to wealth, right? And he's warning him about those kind of people. And he says that those who, who pursue the path of gain through wickedness are going to be ensnared. In the end, the ambush they set for others is actually going to be an ambush for them. They will lose their own life. Now here in verse 2, it says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. He's in essence kind of unpacking this a little bit more. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Money, if gotten the wrong way, or in other problems, you're going to see money, if you place your trust in your, in your wealth, in your, in your bank account, in your investments, all of these things, those things are destructive. Those aren't safe and secure ways to put your trust. And if you get it in an ill-gotten way, it is sinful, and it ultimately will lead to misery and death. So the wise son needs to heed the father's instruction and earn a living, earn money. How? Well, through hard work, through diligence, through prudence. In doing that, he'll be delivered from death. That's, that's the righteous path. That is the path of wisdom here. Verse 16 says, the wage of the righteous leads to life. The gain of the wicked to sin. There's life when it's done God's way. But is this always true? You've heard people say crime doesn't pay. But it does sometimes, doesn't it? At least in this life, don't we see that? How often people have gotten away with things, embezzled. Heck, I've lost. I've lost money, you know, when, and, and people have stolen from me and done wicked things, right? Some of you have as well. So is this always true? When you look at verse 3, it tells us here that the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Yet we know that there are Christians, God-fearing Christ followers, in third world countries who are starving to death right now. But it says the Lord doesn't let the righteous go hungry. So is this true? There are Christians every day who lose their jobs. Get laid off. Again, people steal from them. They struggle to put food on their table. Are these things true? Well, we go back to our principle, Right? We have to read according to the principles mentioned earlier. These promises are generally true now, but ultimately true later. We have to see these in light of eternity, always. Sometimes the wicked will get away with things in this life. Sometimes the righteous will suffer and starve to death in this life. But what do we know that is true? One day, when the king returns in glory, he will settle all accounts. And what is going to happen to the wicked who got away with things in this life? They will experience misery and torment and death for all eternity. Trouble for all eternity. And how about the righteous who have suffered and starved in this life? What happens to them? They will have every single thing promised to them for all eternity. Trouble-free for all eternity. Yes, these promises are true. Keeping them in the right context. Sometimes it's going to work out here for us, brothers and sisters. And praise God for that. But it will all work out in the end. And that is what we hold on to. 
in light of all this. Another thing I'm thinking about here is, um, and it's a challenge we face when we are going through seasons of lack, when we are struggling maybe to make ends meet, when there is more month left at the end uh, of our paycheck, you know, when we lose our job, when things aren't going well, we may be tempted to think that God doesn't care about us, that he's forgotten us, or, or you know, we might be tempted that maybe if I go down that other path, things are going to get better. I'm going to take matters into my own hand because God's forgotten. God doesn't care. I'm going to read a lengthy passage in Luke chapter 12. And I wasn't going to do this, but this morning I felt I need to do it because I think somebody here needs to hear Christ's word to us and the promise of God's word concerning God's care and provision for his people. Luke chapter 12, I'm going to read from 22 through 34. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not Fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is something you and I could take great comfort in, brothers and sisters. When we're tempted to worry, when we're tempted to be anxious about situations in our life or the lack in our life or the need in our life, and we all have them. We all go through periods of time. We've gone through enormously difficult times in our life. Where it's like, God, you know. And he's telling us here, he does. He actually does know. He's not ignoring you. He's not indifferent to your needs. Jesus is telling us here, here's why you shouldn't be anxious. Here's why you shouldn't worry. First of all, none of that can produce what you need. Has your anxiety, has your worry ever brought the need into your midst, right? No, it doesn't do that. We can't even add another hour to our life, Jesus said, by anxiety and worry. I can't produce anything with that. All I'm doing is just being negative or maybe throwing a pity party or doubting or uh, God or not trusting in him. Jesus says he knows what we have need 
And he says, you are of great value to your father. You're worth more than all of those other things in God's creation that he takes care of. How will he not take care of you also? How will he not? He says, it's the father's good pleasure to give you his incorruptible kingdom. That's how much he loves you and values you and treasures you and cares for you. We will go through periods of lack. We, listen, the Christian life is not an easy life. It's an exceedingly difficult life. I hate every preacher that tells people, come to Christ and everything's going to just be awesome for you. It's not. Not now. Not in this life. We're not promised ease, comfort, and all of these things that the false prosperity gospel tells us we have now. This is your best life now. You're screwed. Let me just be blunt. This life as a follower of Christ is going to be met with persecution and challenges and opposition and difficulty. You have the flesh. You have the world. You have the devil. You have enemies arrayed against you in all sorts of ways. And then we're going through the daily grind of life that is difficult enough in this cursed world. And we worry and we get anxious and we begin to doubt God. But when we're in that place, we need to look within to our heart because Jesus is talking about heart issues, isn't he? Saying where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Anxiety and worry about the things that we lack or need demonstrate there is a heart issue going on in us. There is an unbelief issue. An area we may not be believing the gospel and the promises of God and the right things about God. There may be an idol of of comfort that needs to be slain in our heart. There's all sorts of things going on there. But I look at this and I see God loves us. He cares for us. You know, this very week I was meditating on something. I don't even know um, where I read it. I think I was listening to a podcast and um, the, the person began to speak about how God loves us. And I was sitting there thinking about how many times I've said this, I've thought this, God loves me just because of Jesus. Like, it's, God tolerates me because I'm in Christ. God has to love me because he loves Jesus, right? Because he loves Jesus, he's got to love me. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever felt that way? And it, and it hit me in such a profound way that, yes, those things are true. God loves me because he loves Christ. And he loves me because I am in Christ. But he loves me because he loves me. And he loves you because he loves you. Not just because you are in Christ. It's both. And we should take comfort in that. We should rejoice in that you are his child. Yes, because of Jesus, but because you're his child, he cares for you. You're worth a great value to him. And he's going to provide. It's not always going to look like how we need it, but he says he's going to take care of us. And that's got to be enough for us right here. So we're not riddled with anxiety. We're not riddled with worry in our life. And It's going to work out. It's certainly going to work out ultimately. And that's where our hope is. Amen?
I know that's for someone. It's for me if, if it's not for anyone else. Additionally, here is what is true now regarding how the Lord always feeds the hungry and takes care of the righteous. The greatest hunger every single human has is a spiritual hunger. The wicked seek to satisfy that hunger through their uncontrolled, unrestrained, greedy appetite. Giving in to every carnal desire they have, hoping that that, in the pursuit of that, they will find some fulfillment and satisfaction. But that's impossible. Right? Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. In the moment there is pleasure, but it is fleeting. It is temporary. It will never last. But God gives food to his saints that will always satisfy the true hunger of their soul. Jesus himself said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Always. Back when Jesus had the crowd gathered in John chapter 6. This is the day after the miraculous feeding. And and they're coming back. They're looking for Jesus. And he's like, yeah, I know why you're here. Because I bought you all lunch. You got your Happy Meal. You got your Big Mac, large fries, and a nice Coke Zero. Right? Coke Zero is what I got to drink, right? Some of you want Coke. Some of you want Fanta, Sprite, Mountain Dew, Dr. Pepper. He provided that for them. But look what he says to them in in John 6. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. The food that endures to eternal life. And then he says to them in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Promise fulfilled. Right? 100% guarantee in Christ we will never hunger or thirst again. Because that is the true hunger of humanity and Christ fulfills that for us. The third theme we can look at here is wisdom in work. Now, verse 4 and 5 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Some some practical theology, practical application that is being teased out for his son here to understand something about the nature of of work. The wise son here is the diligent. He's prudent. He's not lazy. Solomon's saying two things with this verse, right? That hard work leads to riches. Leads to provision, leads to everything that one needs, right? And, 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 and allows one to be able to provide for their family, which will ultimately bring joy to the parents. But laziness leads to poverty. Laziness leads to lack for the family and will bring shame to the parents. What do we see about the wise son then? The wise son is not a slacker. He's not lazy. He's not shirking his responsibilities. He's diligent. He knows what to do and when to do it. He's not a procrastinator. That's the wise son. That makes mom and dad happy, right? And, and what? There's productivity. There's industry uh, in the wise son's ability, right? His hand produces these things. But here's the contrast. The lazy person has a slack hand. 
right? That word slack is also used of a loose bow, right? A loose string on a bow, right? What can you do with a loose string on a bow? Absolutely nothing. You can't hunt with that. You will starve to death, right? And that's the imagery here that is presented. A lazy son is found sleeping when he should be working, right? Here's to, to sleep during harvest time is the height of folly. Think about that. What does harvest time represent? Life. Right? We got to harvest. We got to bring this in. This is the fruit of our labor. We've done all of this for this particular moment because we need this in order to live. We have we don't understand this because we don't produce our own food. We go to Walmart and Publix and Aldi's. But here, if you didn't harvest, you didn't eat. And for a lazy son, right, whom the family was dependent on to be sleeping during harvest, what a fool. What an idiot. And what is it going to produce but shame and death? But also, Proverbs has a lot to say about laziness. And we're going to see a lot of this, and we'll, we'll devote uh, whole messages to this later on. But a lazy person is also someone who starts things and never finishes them. They... They start assignments, but they don't see them through to completion. They love sleep more than work. They love get-rich-quick schemes so that they don't have to work hard for anything. They're easily distracted and can't stay on task. You know, I began to think about this week. I was reading this in a commentary, this thought, you know, that if you're someone who is doing something and always has to be checking Twitter and, and is sidetracked and distracted by social media and Facebook and five minutes here and all that. That's actually a symptom of laziness, that kind of distraction. I hadn't thought about that and pondered that, but I'll have more about to say that later. Laziness is exemplified in our culture by the prolonged adolescence of children because they're coddled. When they grow up, they can't provide for themselves and have to mooch off their parents which will bring them shame, even if those parents won't admit it. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8. He says that a failure to provide for your family is a failure to believe the gospel. A failure to provide when you have the ability to do so has, is a person who has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But that's laziness. But what do we have in Christ? Right? Christ is the faithful, prudent, and diligent son who brought joy to his heavenly father. There was nothing lazy about Christ. And we know that Christ slept. We know that Christ rested. We know that Christ often went off a little personal retreats. None of that was laziness at all. Look at these three verses in John's gospel that speak about Christ and his work. John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's Jesus saying? My will is to do what my heavenly father has entrusted to me to do, the work he has given me to do. John 17.4, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus prayed this in the garden. He prayed this right before he was to be crucified. He's like, Father, I did everything you sent me to do. I have glorified you before these you have given me by doing every single thing, accomplishing, finishing what you gave me to do. And then on the cross, John 19, 28, 30, Jesus, it says here, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, 
knowing he had done everything that he came to do, that his father entrusted him to do, what does it say? He says that he received the sour wine in verse 30 and said, it is finished. Work completed. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He's the perfect example of the diligent, prudent son, the faithful son, the wise son who pleased the heart of his father. And then let's look lastly at this other theme, wisdom in speech. Again, it's a recurring theme in Proverbs. We're going to see this time and time again. I'm just trying to determine how many messages to do about speech and words and our tongue because there's so much. Our tongue gets us in a lot of trouble. All right? Um, Verse 8, look at this, just this one. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. What does it tell us here about the wise? The wise of heart will receive commandments, right? The wise take wisdom into their heart. This is exactly what the father instructed his son to do. Take wisdom into your heart. So the wise person here is the one who understands Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the wise person knows how to control their tongue. James has a lot to say about the tongue. We will get to that, right? So the wise person knows how to control their tongue, and they know to speak what is edifying and life-giving. But now we have, in contrast, the fool. And I love how he's described. He's a babbling fool, right? He babbles on and on. The fool loves the sound of his own voice. Fool loves to hear him or herself speak. They love to speak more than they love to listen. And they don't accept wisdom into their heart. All they do is babble on about their opinions and their thoughts, and they don't care what anyone else has to say. Do you know anyone like that? <laughs> I'm sure someone's, you know, came to mind immediately that is like this. You have a conversation with that person; it's really one-sided, right? You, you're, you're saying some, but you know they're not listening. They can't wait for you to take a, a breath or a pause, and all of a sudden they're, they rip on, right? And they're just talking about their thoughts and talking about their opinions and what's on their mind, and they really have no interest in hearing what you have to say. Those are very annoying people to have conversations with, right? Uh, don't be that person. That's a babbling fool, according to Scripture here. And it says that a babbling fool will come to ruin, Think about that for a moment. How do they come to ruin? Why do they come to ruin? Well, the first is, number one, yes, they cannot control their own tongue. We see that. There's no guard there. There's no filter. But they come to ruin because they're doing all the talking, and what are they not doing? Listening. They're not listening to instruction. They're not listening to wisdom. They're not listening to correction. All the things that they need to help them and keep them from avoiding the same mistakes that they continue to make in life. Wisdom, though, is being able to humbly listen to and receive advice and instruction and follow it. So to be a person of wisdom, you need to listen. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. Look at verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The more you talk, the more you're likely to sin with your words. 
The more you babble on and on, right, the more likely you are to say something stupid out of your mouth. And we've all done that. I can think of a million times where I should have shut up a long time ago, but I didn't. And I kept going, and I sinned. Right? A wise person restrains his speech. A wise person guards their tongue. A wise person chooses only to speak words that are fit for the occasion, that build up and edify and give grace to those who hear, as Paul instructs in Ephesians 4.29. Look at these other three verses here uh, about the lips, the words, the mouth of the righteous. Verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many. Think about that. The words of the righteous actually fill people up. They don't take from them. They don't starve them. They actually feed. Verse 31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Wisdom is going to flow from the lips of a wise heart. Verse 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. Know what to say and when to say it. Right? Have a word that is fit for the occasion. They don't speak out of turn and they don't say the inappropriate thing. That's the wise person. And Jesus is our example of a tongue restrained by wisdom. Think of every conversation Jesus had in the Gospels. Think of all of his teaching, his instruction, even the way he brought correction and rebuke, the words of encouragement that he gave to his disciples. He knew what to say and when to say it. He knew when to speak and he knew when to remain silent. And boy, do we need to learn that gift of remaining silent. That's super important, isn't it? Those are some of the themes there. And there are others in this chapter. And here's your homework for this week. I want you to read chapter 10. Read it. Reread it. Go through those individual Proverbs. Spend some time with some of those. Again, use them as a diagnostic tool in your sanctification. Just say, Hold it up as a mirror to your life and say, do I see some pattern of foolishness? An area that I'm not walking in wisdom's way, but I'm walking in, 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 the, in the way of folly in this particular area. Maybe it's in the area of laziness. Maybe it's in the area of how you handle money or your view about money or what you're placing your, your trust in, your security in. Maybe it's your tongue. Maybe you're quick to anger. Maybe you're not a good listener. And so when someone's talking, you're, you're just thinking about something else or, or can't wait to get your, your words out there. Whatever that might be, right? Maybe you've made foolish choices and you've brought shame to your parents. What I want you to do is spend time with these, these, these wisdom sayings and allow the Spirit of God to work in your heart, to reveal the idols of your heart, to bring conviction. Then I want you to turn to the gospel truths. I want you to turn to Christ. Repent. Lean into Christ and his grace and forgiveness. Um, and, and allow him to change you and to, to walk in wisdom's way here. In closing, I want you to see this theme of the righteous here. It's mentioned 13 times in this chapter. It's super important that you see this throughout the Proverbs in light of the principles we talked about. And I'm going to highlight these 13 really fast, right? So you'll see the 13 references to 
the righteous here. Okay, Verse 3, and the promises attached to them. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Verse 6, blessings are on the head of the righteous. Verse 7, the memory of the righteous is a blessing. 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Verse 16, the wage of the righteous leads to life. Verse 20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. 21, the lips of the righteous feed many. 24, the desire of the righteous will be granted. 25, the righteous is established forever. Verse 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy. Verse 30, the righteous will never be removed. 31, the mouth for the righteous brings forth wisdom. And 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. Every single one of those promises of provision and blessing and life and hope and wisdom is ours in Christ. It's ours. Why? We're made righteous through Him. So while in this life that is destined to have challenges and trials and struggles where we may not always see these promises flesh themselves out in our day-to-day life, in the grind of our day-to-day life, you and I can be absolutely assured that as His children, all of these things are true for us. And they're all true for us for all eternity because of Christ. Graham Goldsworthy in his commentary on Proverbs called the Tree of Life writes, Jesus has fulfilled in our place the perfection God demands. He was the truly wise and fully sanctified human on our behalf. Thus, as we struggle to become wise, we know that our failures do not disqualify us from life because Christ himself is our only qualification. He, when all is said and done, is our wisdom. And to possess Christ is to be accounted wise By the only judge who matters. Do you see that? In Christ, we're wise. Because he's wise. We're not disqualified. Because Christ is our only qualification of righteousness and wisdom. So all of these promises have their ultimate application for us in eternity. Therefore, we can be exhorted to pursue wisdom to pursue Christ, to find out what pleases our Heavenly Father, and these blessings are ours. Why? Because Christ, the wise Son, has seen to it.